Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. This week on the podcast, we are celebrating a big time milestone in the life of this show. It's the 100th episode of Hell on High Water. And to mark the occasion, we have with us a very special guest, a guy I have been wanting to bring on the show since before we even launched in September 2020, a guy, in fact, who was one of the inspirations for the show when that wild and crazy Gen Z Tasmanian devil, Grace Weinstein, and I first started developing it in the spring of that year. You know, from the start, Grace and I wanted to make a show that was intimately tied to the pandemic, but would still make sense after the pandemic, like more than the pandemic. And yes, we were naively optimistic to assume that there would be a time after the pandemic, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, we rejected, for that reason, narrower concepts and titles for the podcast, including truly one of my great brain farts in the world. There was a period of time when I wanted to call this podcast Coronacopia. I mean, like, how bad would that have been? Anyway, we went instead with Hell and High Water, which was, you know, to kind of reflect the premise that the pandemic was only one of many harrowing developments from you know the shocking regularity of police violence against unarmed black people to the routine mass shootings taking place across the country to the relentless rapaciousness of high-tech global capitalism and the structural inequities in our economy to the increasingly obvious fragility of America's democratic institutions to you know just fucking Donald Trump himself full stop all of that had kind of combined to create this sort of distinct End is nigh, apocalypse now, all over again, vibe that had taken hold in this country over the past few years. And what Grace and I wanted to do, along with the original Hell and High Water team, was to make a series of long-form conversations with a bunch of influential people in politics and business and tech and food and sports and entertainment. The people, you know, who we thought of as being at the center of the culture about how they were coping with all this, this kind of miasma of turmoil and upheaval and rising above it or pivoting away from it or pushing off against it and how we could all maybe figure out a way to join hands and pull through it together. So when Grace and I would try to explain what we wanted to do on the podcast, people would say, yeah, 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 sure. I get it. I get it. Totally. I get it. But like, yeah, like, um, give me an example like of the kind of a guest that you'd want to book on this cockamamie podcast that you have in mind. And we would inevitably, invariably, automatically say in unison D-Nice. And while it took us a hundred episodes to make that reality happen, he's finally here just in time for our mega Mondo centenary Saturnalia. Derek D-Nice Jones, who before the pandemic was both a dear friend of mine and easily one of the world's best working DJs, a guy who you'd find in the booth behind a mixer in a bank of turntables underneath a custom worth and worth fedora, usually, at high-end private parties in New York or LA, at blue-chip corporate events at the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals, at Dave Chappelle's legendary juke joint weekends in Yellow Springs, Ohio, or Chicago, or New Orleans, or at President Obama's second inaugural ball, or one of those infamous and famous farewell parties that he and Michelle threw in their final days in the White House. But then, when the pandemic hit, D-Nice did something unusual that turned out to be transformative certainly for him and for a lot of people, rather than curling up in a ball of depression and isolation and despair, or rather after curling up in a ball of depression, isolation and despair, he sees the moment as a kind of creative and communal opportunity and launched a series of sometimes daily or nightly DJ sets on Instagram Live and christened them Club Quarantine, which 
quickly turned into a socially distanced but raving, raging, electrifying global phenomenon, routinely attracting virtual crowds of more than 100,000 simultaneous viewers, including everybody from Rihanna and Oprah, Iron Mike Tyson to Mark Zuckerberg and Holly Berry and Bernie Sanders, all of which is to say that D-Nice's club quarantine sets were among the few bright spots in those dark and dismal early days of COVID. And more than that, they were tangible proof that amid all of the suffering and fear and panic and pain of the COVID-19 pandemic, it was possible for artists to create uplifting work and experiences that didn't simply look past the distressing realities of the moment, but incorporated them in a positive way. Now, that said, a lot of people suspected that the party that D-Nice had started was just a passing fad that once the quarantine came to an end, so would club quarantine, naturally. And this brand of naysaying, as Derek recalled in our conversation for Hell and High Water, it did not escape his attention. He heard it. And it also sort of, given what's actually happened to his career and club quarantine more than two years after the lockdowns ended, the whole thing has taught him a valuable and empowering lesson. I remember reading a comment that someone left on my IG page and he said, um, yeah, D-Nice is good right now, but no one will care when the world reopens. And you know, that always stuck with me. Like, man, when the world reopens, they're not really gonna care about this thing that I'm doing. And when it actually reopened, it, it became even bigger. It was like, you know, selling out Hollywood Bowl and like two nights ago, sold out Carnegie Hall. And what I learned from it is, is that when you do things that matter to people, it will live, it will live long, you know, long after any one situation. It'd be easy to say that Derek D. Nice Jones, my friend, is overstating the case, but he's not. Although he still regularly spins on IG Live, Club Quarantine has blossomed into something larger and more exciting. It's an in-person touring show, a concert tour, basically, that has put D in front of jam-packed crowds from coast to coast, including, as he said, just last week, a sold-out gig at Carnegie Hall with a giant orchestra behind him and all these kind of old-school hip-hop heads who are up there representing the culture. It's transformed him from simply the best DJ on the planet to the best and also the best known. He's a recipient of pretty much every award for Black Excellence Under the Sun, presenter at the Emmys, performer at the Oscars, worldwide impresario of booty shaking, ambassador of dance floor culture, and all-around beloved and beloving minister of musical joy. So having said all that, I guess it's time here as we celebrate our 100th for y'all to kick back and take a listen as D-Nice and I discuss his improbable and inspiring career from his teenage years as a key member of the seminal golden age of hip-hop collective Boogie Down Productions, his instrumental role in producing the landmark single Self-Destruction for the late 80s Stop the Violence movement, his brief but star-crossed solo career, his decade-long stint in the musical wilderness, his self-reinvention in the new millennium as an elite DJ, and finally, his emergence as one of the few true, genuine supernovas launched by the age of COVID. All of which is to say he's the perfect guest for our 100th exploration of the fiery furnace and the watery deep of a future and a present filled with hell and high water. You know, what's so interesting to me about this, Derek, is that in this moment where so many people are feeling isolated and you say yourself, you were at home feeling a little removed, a little isolated. And then what really happened was you said, how can I be useful? How can yes. I do the thing that, how can I use what I know, what I love, what I do, and offer that to somebody else? It started with me wanting to like brighten 200 people days, you know, like it went on to just become this thing where I signed in yesterday and it was like, 
165,000 people. Yeah, I think you really helped a lot of people not only feel better, but it was the most hopeful healing experience, I think, going on as a collective virtual community uh, in the United States. For anybody who doesn't recognize the voice, that was the queen, Oprah Winfrey, on a show that she was making for Apple TV Plus back in March of 2020, March 25th, 2020, to be precise, not long after COVID started. And she was talking with my friend and the guest on Hell and High Water today, Derek D. Nice Jones. He's here and I couldn't be more delighted. Hey man, how are you doing? Man, I am so good. And that, that clip just made me emotional reliving that. Well, right. I played it because it's just like the pandemic is such a weird thing now, you know, like I don't really think anybody really has their head around it. It feels like a dream in a lot of ways. Like that, that thing, I mean, it's still with us. Obviously, people still getting COVID. But that period right then, those first few months when things really shut down and people were like, I don't know, I can't leave my house. What the fuck? Like that, I can't really believe it was real. Like when, when 6th and 7th Avenue were shut, like empty here, like vanilla sky empty in New York City. And you're out in L.A., decided to like do some weird thing on Instagram and and it blows up in this way that no one could have imagined, which is what we're here to talk about. I mean, a number of things to talk about here and Club Quarantine started and, and here's you and then you're on, the, you're on TV with Oprah talking about it. <laughs> I mean, how surreal could that be? Man, it was, um, it was surreal. It, it was so crazy is that it was something that I, I, I always wanted to just be able to tell like my hip hop story, you know, in that way. And then the world stopped. And then it became more of a, a story about music and about people and community. And um, yeah, it's definitely surreal. Here's the cool thing about this, right? This is the 100th episode of this podcast, 100th episode of Hell and High Water. And I will tell you that when we first started thinking about making it, which was like in the spring of 2020, and my, the woman I kind of co-created the podcast with, Grace Weinstein, we were like, we want to make a thing that's not a pandemic podcast because we know the pandemic will end someday, but it's kind of about more the world seems like it's falling apart. We feels everything feels like it's kind of on the edge of apocalypse. How is everybody coping with that, especially people in public life? And how are they trying to figure out how to get through it? And it was like when people would say, well, well give us an example of an episode, we would go, well, D-Nice Jones. Like D-Nice. Like, well, here's a guy. Look what he's doing. He's like he, in the middle of this pandemic is making this thing that's totally specific to the most apocalyptic moment imaginable. And he's making art and beauty and community out of it. He's in this moment and adapting in this very vivid, you know, dramatic and kind of beautiful way. And everyone would then get what the podcast was about. People would go, oh, I see. That's the kind of person you want to book. So it's taken me a year to, it's taken us a hundred episodes to get you on, <laughs> but welcome to the show. <laughs> so happy to be here. It's funny, man, because it, it, the fact that you said you were trying to create a podcast that would live long after the pandemic is important, right? So right. I remember reading a comment um, that someone someone left on on you know on uh, on my IG page, and he said, um, "Yeah, D Nice is good right now, but no one will care when the world reopens." Right. And you know that always stuck with me. Like, man, when the world reopens, they're not really going to care about this thing that I'm doing. And when it when it actually reopened, it it became even bigger. Right. It was right. like you know, selling out Hollywood Bowl and like two nights ago sold out Carnegie Hall. Like, right. and, and, and what I learned from it is, is that when you do things that matter to people, it will live. 
it will live long, you know, long after any one situation. And um, I'm extremely excited, you know, about what I'm doing right now. Well, well, I think about that, you know, like you mentioned Carnegie Hall. So you're you're in New York um, at this week. You just did this whole that sold out show at Carnegie Hall. I think about all of the stuff, you know, I've known you for 10 years or so now. And it's like, yes, you know, it's it's like I just think about how far you like just what a transformative experience this all was for you. But like you're here this week doing your Carnegie Hall show. Um, we're doing our hundredth episode, we're not uh, on a much smaller scale, much less important. But like, it's still club, still called club, club quarantine, right? Does that no. does that name does that name stay with you forever? You know, or I tried. I, I literally tried to change it. I tried to call it CQ Live. I tried to, but listen, no one they want club quarantine. I tried shortening it. I tried everything, bro. Right. D nice and friends, and they're like, no, club quarantine. That's what everyone knows and loves. Right. It's like, it's so iconic at this point. So like, I, I mean, it is, I, it's totally iconic and it's It's like the only, the only positive thing that came out of the, out of the pandemic. Is there anything else you could think of that? Like, I mean, a lot of people like spending a little more time with their families, even though it was enforced. Like there was a period where people were like, okay, it's nice. I get to spend some time with my family. I don't have to travel so much, but mostly it was all bad. And this is like the one artifact that lives on. And as you say, it's getting bigger and bigger, right? It's like, you're doing this thing. You never imagined you'd be playing Carnegie Hall. No, never, ever. I had never stepped foot in Carnegie Hall until I went to do a venue walkthrough and was like, wow, like, I, I'm not even going to lie to you, John. I, I started tearing up. You know, it was so emotional just being a New Yorker. You know, I live in Los Angeles now for like the last three and a half years, but I am truly a New Yorker. I've never lived anywhere else. And, um, you know, walking into that venue, like I remember walking past the venue. I went to school on uh, 77th Street in Amsterdam. Right. And, you know, sometimes I would, you know, walk through the park to get home you know, lived in Harlem, and I would come down this way in this area where I'm standing now and, like, walk past Carnegie and, you know, just imagine, like, being one of those artists that they had on the side, on, on, on the posters. Right. And, man, you know, to to have become one of those people, man, it's, it's just legendary, it's iconic, it's uh, such a beautiful story that was all built on love and love of community and music. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, just for anybody who doesn't know, we're going to talk about your past in a little bit here. But like, you know, born in, born in the Boogie Down Bronx, I believe, right? You know, no, I was born born in Harlem, raised born in, in Harlem, Bronx. raised in the Bronx, born in Harlem, raised in the Bronx. But you lived in the course of your early life, you lived in everywhere but Staten Island, right? You lived on every four of the every, five, every, four of the four five, of the five. No, no shallow. I may have no. I may have to uh, move back to New York just to live in, in uh, out in Staten Island. <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, I think you could be an honorary member of the Shaolin <laughs> Temple um, if you want. But like, that's crazy. Like you're an art, you're an artist who had a lot of success over a long period of time here. And like, I remember I saw, I read a couple uh, interviews you did this week. You're basically saying you'd never been in Carnegie Hall. And it wasn't until Jay played there that you even thought it was possible for like a, a black uh, artist from the hip hop world to get to Carnegie Hall. Absolutely. Absolutely. I saw, um, I saw Jay last night. And, um, you know, he gave me a hug and was like, yo, congratulations. You know, it's a big thing, you know, because as a, as a hip hop artist, like you, you never imagine yourself on those stages, especially come, you know, I was a part of hip hop when it was still kind of in its infancy, you know, yeah. like that golden era of hip hop where, you know, it's hard to get insurance to put on big shows and like to be invited by like these venues now to play is amazing. The same thing with the Hollywood Bowl. Like they asked me to play, as a matter of fact, LA Philharmonic gave up one of their nights for me to do Club Quarantine live at the Hollywood Bowl. And it's, you know, I know what we have here is special. Yeah. I mean, look, look, I mean, 
I so so you know in the last year and a half, my friends, you know, we were a big deal DJ, one of the great DJs playing, you know, playing for the, the Obamas. You were like in a, a top tier of people who people think of as like the best DJs in the country before you moved to LA and the pandemic started, right? You know, yeah. but in the last year and a half, you've won NAACP Image Award, the BET Hip Hop Award uh, for Best DJ of the Year, the BET Shine a Light Award, the Webby Award for Artist of the Year, the ASCAP Voice of the Culture Award, the Apollo Theater's Percy E. Sutton Award, the National Urban League's President's Award. All that stuff's happened since the pandemic on the basis of CQ, right? Yes, absolutely. Right. So, okay. So I wanna, I wanna do you to step back now, just think about your life in January, February, 2020, before the pandemic hit. Where was your head at in terms of what your career was, like how far you'd come, where you'd landed, the life you were living, and what you thought your future looked like then? So it's pretty interesting, man. Um, I remember sitting on a plane. I was sitting on a plane and I was thinking about the, um, they were talking about this, putting Whitney Houston out on tour with the, with the hologram. And I was like, man, I wish one day I could like DJ like like virtually like and just be able to like pipe me into like different clubs all over the world and play a set like no lie man and um i was tired i was like really tired of the traveling you know at, at that point that year i'd flown over like two hundred eighty thousand miles i was tired i was on a plane every day and i i thought 2020 was going to be the year that i retire like really? i was yes no absolutely i i i, was, I spoke to the president of Live Nation, and um, I had never worked with them before. I'd done like, you know, actually I did one gig with them. They had me open up for Jill Scott in, in Philly. And I, and I told him, I was like, hey, I just wanna, I don't wanna play clubs anymore. I just wanna be someone's opening act. I wanna go on tour and just make 2020 like my last year because I was, I was tired. Like I, you know, single, living in L, you know, living in LA. And I was just ready to like make the move into becoming a music supervisor in film and television. Right. That's why I moved to LA. That it wasn't right. about sunshine. It was about finding opportunities to, you know, get into film, you know, music supervision, and eventually start producing movies. And um, yeah, and, and who, who would have known three months later that that whole idea of like retiring would, would change. <laughs> Yes, well, and you know, I always wonder why you moved to LA. I was pissed at you when you moved. I like, I like what, the, what the fuck are you doing, bro? Like, you're, you're like, well, how could you leave New York City and like move back to my hometown? So, okay, so that's well, your you thought. know, but wait, you know what's so crazy about that? Yeah. Had I not moved to LA, there is no club quarantine. There's none of this because it was created on the basis of, of me being at home alone. Like, I was right. quarantined right. in LA by myself. Right. No family, nothing. So that made me feel the way everyone else did. Right. You know, had you I think, lived in New York, I, there I would have been with my family. Right, right, right. My right. kids. Yeah. Everyone would have, you know, there would have been many, many distractions. So I, and, I feel like the universe put me there for a reason. And how, and like, you know, when I mean, Oprah asked you this question, she said, so there's a longer version of that clip. Obviously, people can watch it where she's like, you know, people like us you know, Oprah, not like I want to compare myself to Oprah, but you and me, let's say we travel a ton. And she says this to you. She's like, you're on the road all the time. You feel like when, if you have to stop, you're like, we're all like, I really wish I'd have to travel so much. And as soon as you stop, you're like, fuck, I'm like, I'm, you yes. feel anxious and nervous about like the fact that you're not doing anything. You can't sit still. So it's like a particular kind of thing to be locked up for our kind of temperaments and, and our metabolisms, right? Where it's like, now we're confined. It's not vacation, enforced 
you know, you're locked in a fucking cell, right? How bad was it? I mean, how how down were you at that before, right before you launched the thing? Were you like like super miserable or what? No, I, I was I was pretty down, bro. You know, like I I realized in that moment, um, you know, I woke up that morning before I went live and I started throwing shit around in my room, like I was angry, right. you know, and I was angry at, uh, with myself because I um I felt like I'd given my life to music. You know, I started making music when I was fifteen. You know, back in nineteen eighty six. Yeah. And I'd given my life to music and sacrifice and, you know, every relationship because I was just in love with music. Nothing was more important to me than than music. And the world stopped and I was by myself. Right. You know, I wasn't with my family. You know, my, my relationship was over years before and, and I, was, I was alone, you know, and that was some hard shit. And so I, I was angry. I started throwing things around in my room. And um, I got up and I went into my, my kitchen, opened my laptop up, started Instagram for the first time, Instagram Live rather, for the first time. Like I had never gone live, you know, and I started for the first time. And I, I remember seeing a, a clip um, recently from that first day and you could see like my eyes were red, you know, because I was crying, you know, yeah. I, was, I, I was angry, like, man, this shit is fucked up. Like, you know, the world is stopping and I'm here. I didn't have a piece of art on the walls. I didn't, I didn't decorate my home. I had no food. It was nothing because I was always traveling. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. so yeah, it was crazy. So it was like a little bit of an act of desperation. So you start this thing and it's not even called club quarantine at the time. It's like homeschooled and you're homeschooled. like, not really, you're not really DJing. You're kind of like, just, you're like experimenting. Like a lot of people were with these platforms at that point. Right. And yeah. it's like a, in a few days, well, a five five days in, I want to play. Here, I'll play this. Okay, five days in. So that Oprah clip was from March twenty fifth of twenty twenty. Remember, guys, March was very early in the pandemic. The country had just shut down within the pre- like two weeks previous. Right, that Oprah clip was March twenty fifth. On March twenty first, twenty twenty, five days into your experiment, you suddenly have a fuck ton of people. Let's play this clip. This is a little supercut of a nine hour set. We're throwing the best party right now. Lenny Kravitz in here, let's throw it back. Oh my gosh, Halle Berry is in here too. <laughs> Keys is in here. Oh my god. Welcome back, Ludacris. Oh my gosh. Michelle Obama's in here. Michelle Obama's in here. Michelle Obama's in here. Diddy's in here, but Michelle Obama's in here. Oh my gosh, let's go. We are partying right now. <laughs> What's up, Oprah? Iron Mike Tyson is in here. Oh my gosh, Rihanna just stepped in here. Riri, what's up? Joe Biden is in here. Let's go. Joe Biden is in here. Oprah's in here. Bernie Sanders is in here too. This is just too much. What's up, Bernie? Zuckerberg is in here. This is crazy. Yo, we got a hundred thousand people in here rocking with us right now. This is absolutely insane. So that's the day you burst through the hundred thousand number for the first time. Instagram Live had never seen anything really like that before. And if I read this right, you got Michelle Obama, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Mark Zuckerberg, along with some of these other people like Lenny Kravitz. I like how it starts kind of like with the build. It's like Lenny Kravitz and Holly Berry. You forget about them pretty quick once you get to Michelle Obama. And of course, you know, and then you got Mike Tyson and Rihanna, who are more important than anybody. 
And, and, I, and my favorite line in the entire thing, Diddy's in here, but Michelle Obama's in here. It's like the only, uh, like, the, like normally Diddy's the most important person in any room, but if Michelle Obama's in the room, she's more important, right? So how much did that, I mean, you were, your head sounded like it was exploding that day. Like it was exploding, right? No, totally, man. But the, what was so funny about that was I, I was, I was, I was excited that Michelle was in there, but I had an idea that she was going to sign on. But the reason why I was excited was me trying to distract people from the fact that the song was ending that I was playing and I was trying to remember her favorite song in that moment which was DJ Khaled and, and Beyonce's song Shining but I couldn't remember what it was so like I'm excited but I'm like trying to type the song in and um, and trying to do it before this song was over and, uh, and that was fun though I mean I'll never forget that day you know like I what's interesting about that that entire thing was I actually reached out to a lot of the people, you know, like I, sure. because I, because I've DJed for, for the Obamas in the past, I reached out to their assistant and I was, I was like, Hey, I got this thing that's happening that really feels good, you know? And it, I was like, it's a party, but it's actually on your phone. And her assistant was like, Oh, I've been in there since Tuesday. And I was like, Oh, come on now. We, <laughs> please, we, I, you know, see if like one of them will come in and she, you know, she's like, I can't promise that, but you know, I'll, I'll put it out there. And then, you know, I started calling everyone else. I knew, like, you know, Bernie's campaign manager, and I knew Joe Biden's campaign manager, and I, I, I just reached out to people, and, yeah. and you know, I, we had never seen anything like this, and we had never really used social media in this way, right. and I knew that the night before I had, like, 20,000 people, which actually represented, like, at that moment, probably had, like, over a million people that Friday, because if you know Instagram, the moment you answer your phone, you're kicked out. And if those numbers are like consistently rising, people are in and out of there. So at the end of the set, you can see um, how many people are in there. And um, that day, when when we reached over a hundred thousand people, you know, consecutively in there, it really represented like three million people. And that's that's a lot of people, you know. So I, I just felt like, man, they, they should at least stop in to say hi, like to to keep people inspired because it was such a dark time. You, you said, you know, a couple things uh, back then that I that I remember even to this day, one of which was you didn't start doing this as like a business thing. It wasn't like, no. hey, here's a way to like make some dough or here's a way to, 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 to buff my brand or whatever. But, you know, the reality is that like, I mean, I got I got this I got this club quarantine shirt right here. <laughs> I, got, I got, I got, I got the, I got this shirt. I'm holding up my club, one, one of many club quarantine shirts. This is like from about April of 2020. Okay, that's, that's um, my so favorite shirt. Man. That's, that's, that's <laughs> this is this is the best one, right? So I got yes. this, sh- I got this shirt, and you know, you were, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying it quickly became clear that this was a, it's going to transform your life, at least in the short term, maybe in the long term. And there was and there was a business in this, right? There was a way to be able to help the world. Like at a time when the economy was shut down, like you were able to be like, "Hey, okay, I'm I'm putting a smile on people's faces. I'm helping people to get through a tough time, and I'm able to build something out of this." You've been an entrepreneur as much as a musician your whole life, and I I looked at it and I was like, "Man, go D. Like, here's a guy who's finding a way. You know, when almost when everybody else is like, "Fuck, I may never work again." Here's a guy who's like finding a way to do good by do to do well by doing good. What's interesting about that, like, um, you know, the first day I went live, I received an offer from, from a from a business to, um, to put their product in the back in the background, and you know I was gonna do it. The check was nice, 
and they made the mistake of sending me a t-shirt as well and they wanted me to wear the t-shirt and I didn't want to sacrifice my integrity nor did I want anything to look like I was trying to capitalize on 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 this pandemic what was going on right after after that that um, the morning of the 21st um, Diddy called and he was like hey come on put some rock in there and I was like puff I can't I can't do that I was like for the first time in my career I felt like this was something that was specifically for me you know as an artist and as a DJ and DJ for everyone else's events it was always about what they wanted me to do what they wanted me to play and this was the first time that I felt that I can just truly be myself no one was tapping me on my shoulders no one was making requests I could just be me and um, when it blew up and I started getting offers and when I tell you John there were millions and millions in offers you know, I would tell everyone that made an offer, I was like, I have to do this for one month for free. Like, because I, I didn't, I knew people were in a dark space. I was reading the comments and I didn't want to be that guy that was like, hey, like now I'm selling something to you. And, you know, a lot of the clients walked away. Some people, some people were like, yo, we're, we're going to ride, we'll wait, we'll wait and we want to do it with you. You know, I had like an Apple commercial and, and Ford and, but all of that stuff happened it, like well after a month of like um, doing club quarantine online for free and I still do it for free like I don't put up a cash app I don't do any of that yeah 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 but the moment that I started selling t-shirts the funny thing is it was a t-shirt that was given to me by Will Smith club quarantine it was uh, it was based on his Bel Air athletics and it was club quarantine D nice club quarantine and when I wore it on a during an interview Fans were like, "Hey, we want to, we want to, we want to buy that." And I ended yeah. up doing a, a situation with, with Will's company, and we donated the money, and and then that's when I knew, like, wow, this thing is this is real. And I put out my own shirts. Like I said, I I was first in line to get one of these. I was like, "Man, I gotta, I gotta represent." All right, we are gonna take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more of Derek D Nice Jones. We're just gonna call him D Nice from now on because that's what he wants. Here on Hell How Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. I want to step back just because I had the t-shirt, you know, so I'm also going through my drawers because I was thinking about the past, you know, I'm thinking about your history. I'm thinking about like, who's this guy, that guy in the hat, that guy, He's iconic, right? The hat, man, the whole thing. That's the image of you now, right? Yes. And you, that is not, you know, the way that you were seen in the city or in the business for a long time. You know, you've got a complicated, interesting career, D, and I want to go back, like all the way back to a really different time to the mid-1980s, the beginning of it all for you, which begins your career not as a DJ, but as a career in the very, very early days of the golden age of hip-hop. It all started for you with Boogie Down Productions, which you were one of three members of this collective that was among the groups that changed the face of hip hop that kicked off that golden age. And you've got two partners, two older guys who were seminal figures in the birth of hip hop. One of them, DJ Scott LaRock and the main rapper in the group, the leader of the group, controversial figure later at the time, brilliant voice, a new voice in the world, a guy named Chris Parker, KRS-One, better known to the world as... And this song is the song that kind of introduced BDP to the world. The first single off the first album, which was called Criminal Minded, was the album's name. And the song was called South Bronx. And I think this is fair to say this is the first time anybody ever heard your voice on record. Let's play that. 
Yo, what's up, Blastmaster KRS1? This jam is kicking. Word. Yo, what up, D Nice? Yo, what's up, Scott LaRock? Yo, man, we chilling. This funky fresh jam. I want to tell you a little something about us. We're the Boogie Down Production Crew. And due to the fact that no one outside there knew what time it was, we have to tell you a little story about where we come from. South Bronx, the South South Bronx, the South Bronx, the South South Bronx, the South Bronx, the South South Bronx, South Bronx, the South South Bronx. Many people tell me this style is terrific. It is kind of different, but let's get specific. KRS One specialized in music. I'll only use this type of style when I choose it. Party people in the place to be KRS One attack. You got dropped off MCA cause the rhymes you wrote was whack. So you think that hip-hop had this star out in Queensbridge? If you pop that junk up in the Bronx, you might not live. That song was the first single off the first record, yes. you know? Introduced the group to everybody and started the Bridge Wars, or was I asked the second shot fired in the Bridge Wars, famous, <laughs> fam- famous fight in the, in, the, in the old, old ancient history of, of hip-hop. Like, man... That group, I know, is complicated for you for a lot of reasons, but like, yes. it saves your life, right? Absolutely. Um, Talk about where you came from and how you found your way into it. You know, like I said earlier, I was born in Harlem, raised in the Bronx, raised in the Bronx near Yankee Stadium, a street called Woody Crest Avenue near Jerome Avenue. So I'm a big BX guy, big Yankee fan. Yeah. And, um, you know, my cousin worked at a, he was a security guard at a men's shelter in the Bronx where KRS lived. And DJ Scott LaRock, uh, DJM was like part time for him. His day job was he was a social worker at the men's shelter. And um, my cousin asked, I used, you know, what I thought was cooking, I used to like warm up like canned corned beef and cook some rice. He was like, you know, kid asked me to bring him lunch. So at the time, obviously, there were no Ubers and we didn't have much money. So I walked from, from where we lived to the east side of, uh, of the Bronx to take him food. He introduced me to Scott LaRock. He was like, hey, I want you to meet my little cousin. And, um, and Scott looked at me and was like, you look like you should be in our group. And I was never a rapper. He just said, you look like you should be in our group. <laughs> and, um, and that day he took me to, um, there was a place called Dr. J's. Um, we walked over to the sneaker store. He brought me some sneakers and like these BVD BVD t-shirts. They were like sleeveless t-shirts. You remember those back in the day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and that's how I, I, you know, I got down with the group and, and the, I, told, I told Dave Chappelle this story and when I told him the story he said, he said, man, did you, did you hear what you said? He said, you walk, you walk three miles with food to feed your future. Right. It's pretty deep, man. Without man. that walk, I'm not here. Without that walk, you're not here. And like, you know, I could, I mean, you know me, right? I mean, you know that I could do two hours on Boogie Down Productions. In fact, in some other world, we're going to do two hours of Boogie Down Productions. I think there's a movie to be made. It's like, it's it's just such a great story. Because I, even a lot of people who love hip hop now don't remember. I mean, they, people like, because of some stuff that's happened, it's like, people like still remember Public Enemy and they still remember Run DMC. But like, Boogie Down Productions is like, maybe my, BDP is like, maybe my, my favorite, my favorite group for a few years like those first couple of albums i wore them out man i wore them out and yes and scott larock people again don't remember this people who aren't part of the culture at least don't remember this scott larock gets killed that song was 86 scott gets yes. killed gets killed in 86 87 right 87 
and and he's really the first actual hip hop casualty. Someone who's actually gets who's who's known for man. I'm not saying you know not close to the culture, but someone who's actually in a group who gets shot and goes down. Yes. And and you're a part of that, right? It's he was trying to help you out. That's what led to him getting shot errantly in some kind of beef. So there was no beef. That's the crazy part. You know, the what happened in that incident was, you know, people in my neighborhood, you know, when you start, you know, getting fame and you still live in the hood, you become a target. And uh, I was literally walking down the street and, you know, a group of people rolled up on me and one accused me of, of trying to talk to his girl. And I was like 16 years old. Like, you know what I mean? Like I was a kid. There was no, I wasn't even like, intimate with anyone like that you know what I mean like and and, um, and you know they pulled out the guns and one guy slapped me with the gun and then they ran off and Scott when the first person that I called to tell about the incident was Scott you know I told him what happened and he was like hey I'm gonna come over let's squash the beef you know we got we got something really good happening and you know we don't you don't we don't want that kind of energy and we it was really a peaceful mission right when Scott came over what ended up uh, happening was a guy who, um, his name was Daryl. Uh, Daryl used to be a security guard, uh, a bouncer rather, at the club we used to hang out in, uh, the Latin Quarters. And Daryl was Daryl was the only person, like he was a part of our crew, but he was the only person that had a car. He, you know, he had a Jeep Cherokee. Yeah. So Scott came over with him, and you know, we were we were just standing outside, like, all right, let's, you know, whoever it is, let's just find it, and like settle this and like be cool and move on and uh daryl started asking some of the kids in the neighborhood like yo you know you know i guess the kid said something to him and and daryl he was just this kind of big towering dude picked the kid up and slammed him so that peaceful mission ended up looking like we were out looking for trouble but the truth is we weren't looking for trouble we were just trying to make sure that nothing else ever happened to just settle it with with conversation so and then they started shooting at us, and that's that's how Scott ended up losing his life, which was which was so unfortunate. And it was a heavy burden to carry, you know, because I knew that that he was he was someone that really cared. Right. He was a social worker, and he was right. He was a man of peace. Yeah, he was a man. He was a, he was man a of peace. Man of peace, and and someone who loved you, and 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 so it becomes you know, there's a lot that comes out of that, right? Again, Scott Larock, someone who. You know, I saw some old clip of you talking about how, you know, you'll never, you'll, as long as you're in the business, you'll remind people who Scott LaRock was because he was in many ways like the heart and soul of BDP. And, and that killing, I mean, you're involved in it. it. It elevates you within the group in some ways. You become the DJ for, for Boogie Down Productions because Scott is no longer in the group. And this is the part I want to get to because it runs right into the thing I'm interested in always at the intersection of culture and politics. It's one of a couple of things, the other being a stabbing incident uh, Nassau Coliseum the next year that you guys, when you guys in Public Enemy were playing, that starts the Stop the Violence movement. And and that movement creates a song uh, that that is, you know, super important to your career. And, and I think, while re- resident of a certain period in hip-hop that a lot of people still look back on in some ways fondly, uh, like when social consciousness was a big part of what it was about. And I want to play it. It's called Self-Destruction. It's a things, you know, Karis one was like reacting and you guys were all reacting to what you'd just seen and losing Scott and in this stabbing at Nassau Coliseum. There were a lot of out of control shit happening at hip hop shows in that time. And this thing comes out with like an array of the most famous people in New York hip hop are on. It's like a super group performance and you produced it. Your first thing you ever produced. We all agree tonight, all of the speakers have 
That's Chris again, Karis one at the start. But this this thing has got, you know, Malcolm X at the top again, a real sign of the times. You have Malcolm X starting the show. But you got you got MC Light, Cool Modi, uh, the Public Enemy guys, uh, Chuck and Flavor both on it. Uh, Dougie Fresh, who else is on that on that thing? Uh, Heavy D. Heavy D. Um, Stetsasonic. Sonic guys, right. And and, yes, be, yes. and, the, and, and the producer, a 19-year-old at that point? 19, maybe? Uh, no, I was eight, 18 years old, yes. What did that yeah. what what did what did that song mean to you and what did it mean to your career? Um, you know, I've worked on songs in the past, you know, like on the BDP albums. I just never got credit for it. So that was the first time um receiving credit on on something that I'd produced. Um but it meant the world to me, you know, because that record I remember the incident. I remember being in Nassau Coliseum, but I also remember the other side of like um on the hip hop and the hip hop production side. I was a young kid, and no one had known that I I was already working on beats for for KRS. So I remember like being in in, in the meetings, and you know, a woman named Ann Carley who uh, used to work at Jive Records. You know, she was one hundred percent behind me um, producing a record, and I remember everyone like, "No, the Bomb Squad should do it." And but Ann was like, "No, he he should do it. He has the, he has a track already." And I think that that was important, not just for me, but um, just for every young kid out there you know to like be 18 years old and to produce a record that went gold and a record that has like real meaning behind it you know like self-destruction which unfortunately that record still applies to what's going on in the world today was such a, a great record like to see like this unity in hip-hop you know in this hip-hop community come together on a song like that was just beautiful and it's it's also people again i know you haven't forgotten all the proceeds from it went to the national urban league which yep just the other day gave you the president's award, which, so it's like, man, time is a flat circle, right? Everything kind of, what goes around comes around. Oh, actually, I want to play one other thing. So there was a book also, right? There was a Stop the Violence Movement book. Stop the Violence book, yes. That Nelson George made. And and, and I saw this clip and it has Nelson George. For anybody who doesn't know, Nelson George was a journalist and author and historian in some ways, a very instrumental figure in the early hip hop movement in New York City, who's now gone on and had huge success in Hollywood as a producer and a writer. This is from a movie, the making of the Stop the Violence song, a little like 40 minute mini video documentary in which Nelson is kind of the primary narrator of it. And here he's kind of summing up the importance of self-destruction and the stop the violence movement and what the song meant at the moment and why one day we would all look back on it as an important historical artifact. The stop the violence record uh, is really, I think we'll go down in history if you look at it, is um, a record which represents the New York mentality of rap and also the New York mentality of, of street life culture. 
We don't have the gangs in New York in the late 80s, early 90s that they have in other parts of the country. For some reason, the, the, the chemistry here has not brought that about. Um, and so we have a lot more consciousness. The whole Malcolm X movement, Afrocent, uh, Afrocentricity, um, all of these positive things, uh, understanding um, or appreciation of Islam as part of the continuity of religion and that Christianity is not the only religion. Um, all these different themes that are going through black culture, uh, uh, you can see that are reflected in self-destruction. It's heavy, right? I mean, yeah. I think it's true, everything you just said. Do you, do you think of that as a golden age? I mean, you're a politically conscious guy. You're a, we can talk about that. You're a, you've been an activist. You've been involved in, in, in presidential campaigns and, and, and all the rest. Do you kind of think of that as a golden age where hip hop was both coming into its own and had all this kind of political consciousness, social consciousness, and do you miss it? Um, you know, even when you go back to like, uh, um, you know, Grandmaster Flash and, and the Furious Five, and you know, the message, Grandmaster Melly Mel, like those records have real meaning. You know, White Lines, they, they, they were all conscious records. And that was the beauty about like hip hop. It used to be kind of like the CNN of, of like the inner city, like anything that happened, people rapped about it. Do I miss that? Yes, I do. But I also, I, I would prefer to see more of a balance in like in hip hop because even back then you still have party records. You still, for every Grandmaster Flash record, you had Run DMC where it was more party. You had LL Cool J you know, making more party records and records about women, fun records, like, you know, but like right now, like there's no one really, or, you know, talking about what's going on in the world, or not, I don't wanna say no one, that's making a blanket statement, but those records aren't popular. Back then, it was important to have those records. You know, it was important to have a, a self-destruction. And, you know, just listening to like what Nelson said and like listening to um, the song itself, it, it just kind of reminds me of, of what my life has always been about of, of being of service to people you know I, I almost forgot that I produced self-destruction and that I was like an 18 year old <laughs> kid and like listening to it you know and and uh and how we reacted to a situation back then reminds me of quarantine of reacting right. to a, a situation about doing what's necessary you know and um, I hope I hope when my when this is all said and done you know when they tell my story that people will remember that it, it was always about being of service yeah well um I, like i said i think there's a lot of threads that that run that run between them i don't want to let people think that it's not only did dinesh produce that song but there's also like dinesh also rapped on that song and it's it's the thing that catapults you into into a uh, into a solo career uh so i want to play both these things let's play first the dinesh verse off of self-destruction it's time to stand together in a unity because if not then you we're soon to be Stop the violence and kick the science down the road that we call eternity, where knowledge is forming. You learn to be self-sufficient, independent. To teach the each is what rap intended, but society wants to invade. So do not walk this path that they laid. It's self-destruction. self-destruction. Like you weren't bad, man. No, it wasn't bad. It wasn't that bad. You weren't, you weren't bad, you weren't bad, you weren't, you weren't, you weren't bad. Um, did you think at that point, like, uh, well, I know, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, uh, call me D-Nice in a second, but, you know, were you thinking, 
I'm gonna like this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a, a b boy now. I'm gonna be a hip. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a singer rapper. That's gonna I'm gonna be on the mic, not as a DJ, not as a producer, but I'm gonna be front front center. Was that your thought at that moment? No, no, I never. I didn't start feeling comfortable being front and center center until recently. You know, like now when I step on stage, I'm I'm very comfortable as a DJ and and um. But back then it was it was really I just want to produce records. You know, and the funny thing about I, I didn't even plan on being on that song, you know. Um, it, once again, it was Ann Carly who said, you should, you should lay a verse because you represent the younger people. Because everyone on that song was pretty much older than me, you know. KRS was, you know, he's like seven, seven eight years older than, than I am. Um, <clears throat> so I represented, like, the young kid. I was 18, um, and that was from my perspective. Um, and, which goes into Call Me D-Nice. Hold on, hold on, Derek. Just wait a sec. Now that you mentioned... Call Me D-Nice. It feels like we should probably play it. It's the song that I cherish and adore. And there are still people who think of it as a kind of delightful curio window into a particular moment in hip-hop history. Call Me D-Nice, the song that was your biggest single, a song that did pretty well, a song that captures a certain kind of flavor of hip-hop at that moment. Let's play Derek D-Nice Jones and his calling card song, Call Me D-Nice. My name is D-Nice. My name is D-Nice. this very brief solo career. I just enjoy listening to Call Me D-Nice. You talked before about the difference of socially conscious and political uh, hip-hop at that time, and those songs are more fun. That's a song that's basically, you know, b- b- built around wordplay and and like kind of old school, you know, typical like on the mic bra- braggadocio, right? Yes, yes. And, and it, But it did pretty well, did pretty well, was, was pretty hot there for a moment. And then the solo career kind of got derailed and you begin this period that goes on for like a decade, I would say, what you would, as you and I have discussed in the past, at least I understand it, have listened to you talk about it at some length uh, between ourselves, kind of a period in the wilderness, right? Where you're not really, you know, the, the thing got derailed in some pretty significant way and you're trying to figure out what to do next. You're basically out of the music business within a decade, right? Yes, the, my career was derailed, um, in which I, I don't have any, I have no regrets about it because I, because that's part of the journey that I've been on. You know, I, I would still be, I could potentially have still been like an old school guy shopping demos right now. Like, hey, I still want to make music. Um, when my career ended, when people stopped clapping, it wasn't necessarily about the music. I was still selling records. You know, my last album um, as a solo artist did like nearly, nearly, you know, 450,000 copies right. um, in the States. It was about the business side of it. You know, like, you know, I was with Jive Records, and they just didn't believe in me. You know, hip-hop music was changing. You know, the, the Diddy era was beginning. The Snoop era was beginning. Like, you know, music was changing, the sound of it. There was no one that was, you know, doing conscious music like that. And I was still young. I wasn't down with KRS anymore. And, um, 
yeah, and they just didn't believe, you know, and I wasn't a part of anyone's crew. And I couldn't get off the record company. And, you know, back then, if you didn't have a song out in, in two years, your career was over. And, and I, I had to, I, I, was, I became depressed and, and, you know, ended up having a family, not out of depression, but I had, you know, I ended up having a family and then I had to figure out how to take care of my kid. And um, yeah, and after nearly about seven or eight years, I ended up uh, falling in love with social media, or not, it wasn't social media then, but like new media, it was, it was called, and I started producing websites. Yeah. And, um, you know, as a, just as a producer, you know, the first project that I ended up um, getting was uh, Aaliyah's website with Black Round Records. And we had a bunch of other programmers working on it. And I used to sit back and watch them program. And then I picked up some HTML books and taught myself how to program. And then I became like like a true web developer and built major sites and worked, did all our marketing for everyone from Reebok and you know, all the record companies were my clients. And that's pretty much what kind of got me back into being creative again. You couldn't stay away from the no. beat and in the end, right? The notion of, of being involved somehow in music was kind of irresistible for you. You got kind of sucked into DJing, right? It wasn't like you were like, hey, I'm going to make a big career as a DJ now. It's just sort of like, I can't stay away from the music. So the DJing thing is interesting. You know, Q-Tip invited me to a party. It was one of his birthday parties. And I wasn't a party goer at all. You know, I, I you know, because at the time, like before um, my web career, you know, I didn't have any money, you know, like, so I wasn't going to anyone's party to buy drinks or anything, you know. And um, when Q-Tip invited me to his party, that was like the first time that I'd been to like, like a real party and like, like literally like at that point, probably like seven, eight years. Like what year uh, is it? What year is this we talking about now, roughly? So this was like, probably like 2002. Right. This is just before I started DJing. And I walked into his party and I couldn't believe the music that he was playing. Q-Tip was DJing and like Mark Ronson was playing and I couldn't believe that you could be in a party and like play like Blondie records from the 80s and like with all these young kids listening to it or people that were my age. And I was blown away by Q-Tip's set and Mark's set and I ended up throwing like parties, small parties. And I couldn't find a DJ that that played everything the way that, that that the way that they did and i i was like you know what i'm just going to do it myself and i started buying records and throwing my own parties and it used to be like 10 people in there so you look at going from 10 people to being able to sell out a hollywood bowl or something like that is just mind-blowing to me that doing what you love can take you on this beautiful journey all right we're going to take one more quick break and we'll be right back with d nice here on hell and hell water And we're back with D Nice here on the hundredth episode of Hell and High Water. And D, you know, I want to like compress a lot of history here, from your decision to become a DJ to your rapid ascent in that world to becoming one of the elite guys in the game. We'll talk about this a little more about all the stuff you eventually did for Barack Obama, both at the second inaugural and then later on in the back part of his time in the White House. But because I associate you so much with being one of the kind of house DJs for Barack Obama, you came to mind when I was listening to 
this podcast that Rick Rubin and Malcolm Gladwell do called Broken Record. And they had Questlove on telling a story that made me think about you because it takes place around the same time at the end of 2016, when I know that you played an important gig at the White House. He plays a gig at the White House. And he, unlike you, he's like mad scientist. He's planning out the set and he's thinking about how this is going to be the most important set he ever plays. And he's going to make everyone in the White House go crazy. It's like January 2017. Obama's about to leave. Big party. He's like, I'm going to play the perfect DJ set and everyone's going to love it. And instead, it totally falls flat and nobody digs it and nobody's moving to the point where Obama has to come and tell him to like start playing some different music because it's not really working in the room. So he kind of recovers. He plays some stuff. And at the end, he leaves really depressed. Have you heard this story? He leaves in a state where he's like, fuck, man, that was supposed to be my big moment. And I fucked it up completely. Obama chases him down in the hallway to say, hey, like, what's up? You seem like you're down. And he says, yeah, I'm down. I like, I think I really fucked this whole thing up. I had a chance to do a great set and I didn't. And this is what happens. This is the rest of the story of what our conversation. He talks about Charleston and the Dylan Roof situation with the massacre. He said he knew that 30 seconds after the shooting happened, that he was going to have to speak at that funeral. So he says he has the speech of his life, like ready to go. He's been working on it, perfecting it. And he goes down to Charleston, South Carolina. And he knew three minutes into that speech, it wasn't going to work. And he said, some just told me, Barry, start singing Amazing Grace. Then he starts singing Amazing Grace and everything turned around. He says, you know what I did? He said, I served the people. I served the people. I saw that something was wrong. I figured, how can I fix this? I took a moment. I breathed, collected myself, and I served the people. He said, and what you did tonight, you saw that something was a little off, and you served the people. There's honor in that. You did the right thing. We had the time of our lives. You served the people. So you should be proud of yourself. Now, do you feel better? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is such an Obama story. Like, you served the people. Um, I mean, do you relate to that at all? Like that there's like an incredible amount of pressure to be there. I know you don't do sets, right? You don't have like a set list when you walk in. No, I don't. It's funny because Quest, he actually shared that story with me, like maybe a few weeks after it happened. And and what he said to me, we ran into each other at a restaurant. He was like, hey, sit down. Yo, come here, sit for a minute. I got to share this with you. And he told me the story and he said, he said, man, you had them going so crazy in the White House because I played a week before he did. He so I did the second to the last party. Right. He did the last party. That's what he's referring to. Yeah. And he was like, he was like, man, you had them, you had it so crazy in there that, it, you know, I couldn't even, I couldn't even get my set right, you know, the way that I wanted to because of what you did. And we just laughed it off. But like, I don't have a set, man. Like, I really look at, well, you know, like now I get to just be who I am and be free, and like I use musicians when I DJ, and it's like a show. But before that, I would just go in and look at people and and you could tell by their body language like you know um, um, if someone's having a good time if they're dancing or if, you know if it's time to switch a song or just by that, at least that the way that I DJ Quest to me is one of the best DJs that I've ever heard in my life if you love music and you you could listen to a Quest Love set and you know I learned to be a better mixer because of Quest like I remember being at a party with and, you know, when I was still figuring my DJing out and I just met him and he was mixing Belbert DeVoe's Poison with Nirvana, with Teen Spirit. And it was all based on a ding, 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 
and he was dropping the drums, and that was the first time that I realized I was like, holy shit! I was DJing from bass lines, like the way the rhythm felt, but he was DJing from the drums. It changed my whole perspective, and I just I love his DJing, you know. But yeah, he can get in his own head too, though, man. Like he, because he's all about perfection. Me, I'm like, I just want to be free and like. Just play whatever. Like, if it feels good, if I can mix Jay-Z with Bette Midler, I'm going to do it. And, and, <laughs> you know, like... Right. And like I said before, it wasn't just that one party at the White House for you. I mean, you'd played at the Obama inaugural back in 2013, right? The second inaugural. Yes. You played a lot of Obama gigs. I remember, you know, you played a, 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 a party that I threw in the fall of 2016. Uh, and then you were going to the White House. You went and played like a few days after that. Yes. I believe you played Obama's birthday party at Martha's Vineyard, his 60th birthday, a couple couple weeks back. So what's that been like? Like to be, I mean, you're a political person, as I said before, and you've gotten part of like, you've managed to twin, diffuse your the DJ career as it was taking off with being, you know, very deeply, intimately involved in, you know, obviously the most important black politician in the history of the country, but also just in democratic politics in general. These are all, to me, signifiers of the way that you kind of weave things together and make it all work. What's interesting about that is the Obama administration or Obama for America, which was the private thing that they had um, when he was running for for re-election, was um, my reason for getting more involved in politics in terms of like having a voice. It all started with them. You know, it started with them. I was doing a show in Chicago and someone that worked for them said, hey, you know, we'd like for you to come over to to the office and um to see if there's any way that you can be involved in what we're doing, and I, I went over there, and um, you know, you know, I, I remember walking around the office, and like they, it was like this one big office, and everyone was in cubicles, and we got to this area where it was like the vetting area, and I was like, man, I guess I'll hear from them soon. And they were like, what do you mean? You've, you've already been vetted. We already did our due diligence. You wouldn't even be in this office. And my reason for getting involved was because I felt seen by them. You know, like I felt that they understood who I was and what I was doing in terms of DJing and trying to keep people inspired. And they just they just thought that, you know, they could help me amplify that voice. And um, and, and I've been a fan ever since, you know, and I and I get involved in like democratic in, uh, politics, you know. Um, actually, I don't even just want to say that I just get involved in like doing the right thing and, and trying to make sure that that my voice is heard. What, what's your best? Uh, what's your best Obama story for playing? Uh, for playing any of these events of all those events you played for them? What's the best story you can tell without getting in any trouble, or um, with get or with getting in trouble? I'd be fine <laughs> with me too. <laughs> the, the thing about the thing about um, um, you know President Obama is is he he's so cool, but when it comes to music, it's almost like being this innocent person. I remember playing this party; it was, it was very intimate. Um, on, on, on Island, on Martha's Vineyard. I mean, it was literally like 40 people. And I was playing this song, and he came over, and he was like, hey, man, what song are you playing? I was like, oh, it's called Candy Rain. And then he walked off, and then he turned back around, and he was like, wait, who sings this? And I was like, it's a group called Soul For Real. And then he, he just walked away smiling. And I was like, man, this guy is he's just awesome because he just wants to know. He wants to, you know... And, but the fact that he didn't know what that song was just made me laugh because I'm like, man, everybody black knows that song. <laughs> 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 you 
<laughs> yeah. And you know, look, you're telling these stories here about Obama and, and I got to say now it's like you're world famous and you're worldwide. The guy with 9 jillion Instagram followers and everybody on planet earth knows you, but because you are who you are now, I particularly cherish some of our shared history together. And I got to say, I tell this story occasionally to people because it was actually a pretty meaningful thing for me. I threw this party back at the end of 2016 that you came and played at. Yes. And a little while later, I remember I got a text message yep. from you and you had played one of these gigs at the White House. And in this text, you wrote to me that the party that I'd thrown that you played at had changed your life. And I yes. was like, what? I was like, what do you mean? My party changed your life. And you started talking about like how it changed in some small way, some small way, you're, the way you thought about DJing and what you could and couldn't play in certain settings. And you were like telling a story about the White House in this like November, October, November, 2016. And the only reason I mentioned it is because I, I said, I'm not being, I'm not kidding. You wrote this thing to me where you said, you're a 50 year old white guy that knows every lyric to paid in full. That yeah. was the moment that I realized that my generation of hip hop is like classic rock. Yeah. And I like, and then I understood what you meant. I was like, oh, okay. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm sure a million things change your life all the time. So I'm not like trying to take special precedent here, but it was meaningful to me because I thought like, oh, that's cool. That that was the thing that opened some, opened the door for you. It really did though. And, 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 and to be honest with you, I was, I was, I was being judgmental at that moment, like, um, or parties before that I would go in and I would play level 42. Like I would look at like, you know, all right, cool. This is a more mainstream white audience. Let me play what I thought that white people would listen to. Even though I love level 42 as a black dude, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Seeing you, when I played your party and you came over and, and, and you asked, you specifically asked for Tribe Call Quest scenario. Yeah. And I looked at you like, what the fuck? And when I played it, that entire audience went crazy. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I had it all wrong. I knew in that moment I had it wrong. And this was what? How many years ago was this? That was 2016. That was 2016, yeah. 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 I had it all wrong. I was like, yo, what am I doing? Like, you got to be free. This is the generation that grew up with hip-hop. Yes, this is classic rock to you, you know? And, um, and it changed my perspective on it, you know? So playing, playing the White House... Um, playing that second to last party where I know Quest was probably like, you know, playing, using wordplay with the songs and the feeling and going into James Brown. Me, I was like, oh no, I'm going to treat this like, oh, I had them swag surfing. <laughs> <laughs> we were swag surfing in the East Room. You know what I mean? Like, so I was like, no, I'm just going to go, I'm going to play it the same way. Like, I've always felt like because of the moment with you, that every, and not calling you old, you know, we're pretty much the same age, but like every older person wants to hear the music they grew up with, but they also want to be cool enough to know what the new Drake record is too. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, so yeah. I just learned to just be free and don't judge anyone. Play what feels good. If you play it the right way, everyone will love it. You give the older people something to feel nostalgic about and to feel cool with the younger records. You give, you teach the younger people about this old Luther Vandross or this old, you know, Rolling Stones record, you know, and it's, it's just dope when you can bring the world together. So the club quarantine, you know, just going back to that. Yes, 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 your, yes. Your, your party, your party set the tone for what it is and what it became based on being free to play music for everyone, like that is important to me. Yeah, and I think it's great, man, because like I gotta say, and I wouldn't, I was not gonna go there, but like the, when you told that story about the White House, you're like, 
the scenario thing came through because you're like, I dropped scenario and I could mm -hmm. feel the um, the floor of the East Room moving. It was yes. like, that was like the kind of like confirmation. Oh yes, this is like the right path. And when I would watch you on CQ, it's not really even characterizable. Like what this, like he's just going from from song to from generation to generation and genre to genre. It's not confined in any way. I know you're like a big 80s head. Prince is your like, maybe your most beloved artist, right? But Absolutely. like- but but you'll but you're everywhere, man. You play you're playing across. The, you, there's forty decades, forty years, four decades at least of music you play music, in yes. every possible of every possible genre in a given thing. I don't know what I'm gonna hear. And yeah, you do some things that are like I'm gonna you know play some baby making music tonight, and that's gonna there's definitely gonna be some Al Green. And I'm gonna hear that <laughs> right. But mostly they're not theme sets. It's mostly like what no. is happening in this moment and in the pandemic in particular when everyone was like felt like. I don't have any feelings. I don't have any emotions. I'm locked in this fucking room. You'd still find a vibe that was different on Tuesday than it was on Wednesday. And it was like, oh, it was like you were kind of creating these vibes for people who were locked inside that they were like, I, I don't really, I'm not living my normal life, so I don't have moods anymore. And you're like, no, no, there are still moods out here and I can make you feel them and we can participate in them. I was like, this is a kind of magic to this that you're like giving people some like interior life that they're closed off from because the world is shut down. That was like, I thought like the thing that was magical about, about club quarantine, especially those first like three or four months. Yes. Yes. And it was really based on, I was, it wasn't even something I was trying to do. It was, I could be, I would be in my living room and all of a sudden player, this, the group player, I would start singing baby come back. And I'm like, oh man, I remember this record. Oh, I, want, I just want to go online and DJ. I'm going to play this whole vibe right now. And I'll just jump on and just start playing it. And then I would read the comments of people like typing in the lyrics, like, oh my gosh, I haven't heard this. So that made me want to explore more music and more popular music that, you know, more, you know, classic rock or, or, or yacht music. You know, I, I remember getting on playing like a whole night of like yacht music, man. Like, but it's, it's songs that I love. You know, like if you grew up in the 80s, right? You know, I was born in 70, pretty much grew up in, in the 80s. Those were my formative years. Yeah. If you, if you loved Run DMC and you wanted to see that video, during that time, MTV didn't have your MTV raps. So if you wanted to see that video, you had to sit in front of the television and wait <laughs> for that video. And because I used to sit there, yeah, like I love, you know, all of that, you know, big hair music and, yeah. you know, the police and, and yeah. Weird Al Yankovic, you know, making those songs. Like, I grew up loving that stuff. So yeah, yeah. when when CQ happened, I had a chance to just truly show my love of music, you know. And I remember there's a there's a, a pretty famous DJ. Um, he has a show in the morning, um, you know, syndicated show called The Breakfast Club, DJ Envy. Yeah. And, I, and Envy called me one day, like, in the early days of the pandemic, and he said, man, I appreciate you. He said, for the first time in my career, I get to dance with my family. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that there's a man that's listening to me on the other end of this, this phone. And he's listening to this music with his family. So I need to be respectful and play music that everyone can dance to. And, and, and it should have a family vibe. And that's why I spend the way that I do and, 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 uh, and I play as much music as I can. Well, I got to say, listen, um, you know, we, I, we, I, we haven't talked about hats and, and we could talk about hats for a long time. You were like a fashion <laughs> play. You have, you've made the, the brim, the chapeau, a uh, 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 fashion statement of this decade, of this generation. We're not going to talk about that. We, we have not <laughs> talked about your photography. 
Um, you know, your photography was like, you're a brilliant photographer. We could spend all day talking about that. Uh, we could talk about, you know, you're now investing in high tech startups. There's all kinds, like you were like a man for all seasons. You're like a Renaissance man. Uh, you thought you were going to be retiring two years ago and now you're like doing all this shit. So here's my question as a way to end. You've now played the Oscars. You played the, uh, you've been to the Grammys. You played the Super Bowl. You played, you know, the NBA, you go to the NBA finals, I think, and play some almost like basically every year. You've been on Carnegie Hall, you played the Hollywood Bowl. You know, I just like, it's a stupid, like, I feel like a, like a local TV announcer. What's next for D Nice? But like, what else is there, like, for you that you think of, like, here's what, not like, what's next for D Nice, but like, what's left to do, man? Like, what else is there out there? Or, or are you close to being sated again and thinking like before you wanted to retire because you were tired, basically. It was like, I'm sick of the travel. I want to like shut it all down. Now there's new vistas. So are you, are you still like, man, I got another decade of this. I got shit I got to do now. Or are you kind of like, this was great, but like, I feel like sated and I might want to like take my foot off the gas at some point. One, just listening to you mention all of those things, man, that made me emotional because I, you know, I wanted to retire and, you know, I ended up like co-hosting the Emmys and, you know, DJing Oscars and like playing the music, walk on and walk off music on the show. Like yeah. that doesn't happen, you know. Um, so I think like me being tired was more, I was more tired of like the fight of like trying to be recognized as like as a good DJ that can play these big rooms and not having the real opportunity to do so, which is why I ended up playing like mainly like private events because I felt like they understood and they were respectful of the music vibe that I wanted to create. Now that I am, I've created my own vibe and I can play these rooms and people want to come out and dance, I don't even look at retiring. I just, I just want to continue playing music as long as possible, man. It really is what makes me happy, you know, and that's the one thing that I learned during the pandemic is, man, when this is all said and done, my life is over, I want to know that I lived a life where I was really happy with what I did. and. And I tell you, man, I'm I'm happy, bro. Like I feel like there's nothing there's nothing that I haven't done that you know that, that I want to do now. You know, you know, I just look forward to just continuing to, to celebrate music and culture and putting a smile on people's faces. You know, it's so crazy because like the other day, the day after Carnegie, I was walking. You know, I was going to pick up my daughter. She was staying with my friend. Um, and I was going to pick her up, and I was walking down Broadway. I was on 67th Street and Broadway, crossing the street. So as I'm crossing the street, this woman, an older woman, an older white woman, ran up to me, and she was like, oh, my God, it's you. And I stopped, and I turned around. I didn't have my hat on. I'm thinking I was, you know, being incognito without a hat, you know, no hat. And she was like, my gosh, I was at Carnegie Hall last night, and then her husband came over, and he said, we drove from Pittsburgh to go oh, to Carnegie Hall oh, man. To, to, to see you. And I just started tearing up because I, you know, the music that I played mattered to a two-year-old all the way to someone who's like 80. And, you know, these people drove to hear the music. And it's about community for me, you know, and, I, and that's something that I don't take lightly. So as long as the community accepts me and, and wants to hear me play music, I'll be that guy, man. And I love it. Well, man, uh, I you know I don't know anybody who doesn't love uh, I don't know anybody who doesn't love you. If if you're one of the six people on planet Earth who hasn't looked at uh, 
at, uh, <laughs> at, at, at Derek doing one of his uh, IG lives. You got to like go check that out. Uh, there's almost no, no one who listens to this podcast doesn't do it already. But uh, I love you, man. It's great to see you. I got to say, like, I never, I was, we're still trying to plan who's the 100th episode going to be with. And the fact that you're like, like, oh, D Dice is in town and he's the inspiration for the show. So, like, you know, it would be kind of if we could get him on here, that'd be pretty good. And I'm really grateful. I feel blessed that our time synced up like this. And it's awesome to see you. It's awesome to see you, man. And, and uh, you already know I have so much love and, and, and respect for you and what you do and the fact that you love the Wu Tang Clan. And hip <laughs> hop, man. It's hip hop. But I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on the show, man. Congratulations on 100 episodes. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Derek D. Nice Jones for being with us for our 100th episode. If you liked this 100th episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water for the next 100 episodes and share us, rate us, and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer. Fonda Mwangi and Zoya Suroy are our researchers and the one and only, the truth, the light, the hope, the dream, Marshall Isaac, our executive producer. 